this is D.L. Hudson. Welcome to Church and Culture. This show is devoted to exploring the interaction between our faith and our culture. Each week, I will talk with expert guests on topics ranging from literature, art, and music to politics, liturgy, spirituality, and education. Thank you for joining us. Very lucky today on Church and Culture to have back on the show Father Lawrence Carney. You may recall that a month ago, maybe two months ago, he came on to talk about his book, The Secret of the Holy Face, The Devotion Destined to Save Society, 10 books last year. But we're going to talk about St. Francis de Sales today. I'll tell you why in a second. Let me remind you that Father Carney was ordained in the Diocese of Wichita, Kansas in 2007. For five years, he walked the streets of U.S. cities and cassock, carrying a crucifix and a rosary in each hand in an effort to bring souls to the Catholic Church. Sounds a lot like St. Francis de Sales, by the way. In 2014, he was appointed as chaplain of the Benedictines of Mary, Queen of Apostles in Gower, Missouri, where he presently serves. In 2017, he began the League of St. Martin, a pious association that prays for reverence, reparation, and reversion, the chief goals being enrollment in the arch confraternity of the Holy Face and the confraternity of the Holy Rosary. Father Carney, welcome back. Dale, thanks for having me back. It's an honor. Well, you're always fun to talk to, and and <laughs> this particular subject, the occasion of this subject, is the fact that Tan has published in two volumes the sort of, I guess, lesser-known book by St. Francis de Sales. Everyone thinks of his introduction to the devout life. This one is his Catholic Controversy, A Defense of the Faith, in two volumes. Tell our listeners basically what this book is and where it come from. Yes, Steel. So St. Francis Sells, when he was ordained one year afterward, at the age of 27, he was sent by the bishop to go to a city called Chablois in France. And this city, 60 years prior to that time, had a revolution by the Calvinists, and the 72,000 Catholics became Calvinists. And they hadn't heard anything about the true faith for 60 years when St. Francis arrived. And so for four years, St. Francis would walk around and talk to people. He would try to preach, but they would threaten to throw stones at him and jeer at him. And so he started to write pamphlets, and he put them under the doors of people. And the, these pamphlets went straight to the point, because he didn't have a lot of time to dilly-dally. And so these pamphlets make up what is the Catholic controversy, a defense of the faith. And I'll leave you with his introduction with the main point. By the power of God and through his work, all... 72,000 of these people became Catholic again, except for a few, which is an amazing feat in our day. Well, what I read there, and you just mentioned, is basically he came to this this place, Chamblay, which was then part of France, very close to Geneva, Switzerland, that had become Calvinists. And when he arrived, there were 72,000 Calvinists and 270 Catholics. And when he went back, there were 720 Calvinists and 72,000 Catholics. <laughs> and, of course, you know, I've read a bunch of uh, these two volumes, and these, you know, these may have been pamphlets, but this is substantial reflection, substantial uh, proclamation, exclamation. 
I mean, this is not just a throwaway kind of pamphlet that we think of sitting in the narthex of our churches. Yeah, Pope Pius IX in 1877 said that this book is, quote, a full and complete demonstration of the Catholic religion. Yeah, well, it reminded me a bit of the Summa of, of St. Thomas Aquinas because he would state a position, but then in the next chapter he would respond to the standard objections to what he had just said. It So it's it's in a kind of a watered down, but but certainly not simplified, uh, summa style of someone. He he's obviously a man highly trained. He got doctorates in law and theology from the University of Padua, which at the time was arguably the greatest university in the Western world. This was all in the in the late 1500s, and uh, he was hot, very learned. He came from, Father, we can talk more about his family. I mean, very wealthy, well-to-do, privileged family. And he basically just turned his back on all that, didn't he? Yeah, and he went with his cousin, Canon Lewis. So a canon, of course, is someone high up in the hierarchy to, to go out to these people. So... He left a lot of the trapping of the world and a well-to-do life for something that was so simple, and that was to save souls, to bring them back to the church. Well, his father even had a wife picked out for her. She was quite wealthy. And he had positions in Geneva, very, again, lucrative and prestigious. And he was just not going to be bought. Uh, and uh, he it reminds me a little bit of St. Francis of Assisi is that is that accurate? yeah because these guys when leaving their family they just are living on a different level they're living in the spiritual world and St. Francis of Assisi and St. Francis Sales and St. Francis Xavier these three Francis's they basically drove themselves into the interior life and really were rewarded handsomely by God. And they received the fullness of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, one of them being wisdom. All three of these saints had it to a high extent, which is seeing things as God sees them. So when these men had wealth presented to them, they saw it as just a vanity. And they saw the prize of doing what their missions would come out to be, which were amazing. The the thing about St. Francis de Sales that I didn't know, of course, I always read to prepare to talk to you, Father. You understand that. (laughs) This is not knowledge I had yesterday. I mean, I knew that you were the expert, but I wanted to at least be able to... uh, partner you in, in this conversation he was tall handsome very attractive charming and as i've already said very well educated and he he actually as a young man you know took dancing lessons and horseback riding i mean this this was a man that was destined to be a seigneur you know in, in the french style Yet he, what does he do? He accepts this task of walking into an enclave of Calvinists, uh, overwhelmingly Calvinists, only a handful of Catholics. And even when he's living in this small hut with a widow, uh, she has to sometimes hide him from Calvinist mobs. Yeah, I... There were some nights that he spent in a hayloft. And then the famous story, one night he had to climb a tree to escape some wolves. And he even took a rope and tied himself to the branch so that he would not fall off when he fell asleep. And some of the people from the city found him 
almost halfway frozen death because his circulation was really bad. So this was a man that was not in the robust health doing these things for these souls. He went to the upper limit for the salvation of his people. And there well, was I mean, a lot you... of reasons Go ahead. why he was so successful. And one of the most important ones, in my opinion, is there's even a picture in the Visitation Monastery in Fonin, and it shows him and his cousin when they approached the region for the first time, they were invoking the guardian angels of the whole diocese. So, there's a spiritual world that St. Francis Sells knew very well, and you could see the fruits of his work were vast. Well, you know, when you when you walk into a, a very hostile region religiously in a in in a Europe that's torn apart by religious wars, frankly, and burnings and this and that, uh, this was not uh, an easy job at all. And uh, as I read about him, it seemed like he just was very patient. He would make this friend or that friend just be kindness and charitable and he uh, would not he wasn't like a he didn't have a high pressure sales persona did he no that's that is so important he preached with charity in his thoughts his words and especially his actions so his main tactic his main spiritual weapon was love and he wanted to listen to the people and be patient. And it was the long game. It was the marathon, not the sprint that he was after. And when people would see him constantly, they had to take note that this man was serious. And that's something that I try to do as well when I walk the streets. Is Sometimes I get impatient and frustrated and my dad once told me Father Carney in five years they're going to start coming to the church because uh, I just moved from Missouri back to my home diocese in Wichita ah, a month ago yes. and Bishop Kenny has appointed me the apostolic priest to do what St. Francis Sells did so he's a big patron of mine um, and a role model because it shows you can get results if you really live out the virtues. So I'm begging him to intercede for me. So I would like to replicate something like he did in Chablon. A lot of people talk about the new evangelization. And in my opinion, really, this was the new evangelization back about 400 years ago. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more to bring back the people that left the church. You know, the old evangelization was bringing the pagans into the church, and the new ones was bringing back the ones who's lost. I don't know what else you can you can do from there. And there's a lot of them. I mean, the statistics, and I suppose they're generally true on mass attendance, it, it really is It's heartbreaking to notice that, you know, since the 1950s, I believe... American mass attendance has gone from something like 60, 65-70% down to like 17%. I mean, is this the kind of reality you feel like you're dealing with in Wichita? Yeah, this is everywhere deal. It really is heart-wrenching. It just goes to the gut like a sucker punch to those of us that really want to keep the faith and spread it because there's so much on the line. There's heaven and hell. I mean, that's why Jesus Christ came to redeem us. That's why he gave us this church was for two things, to give God right worship, and I want to talk about that in a minute, and secondly, to save souls. And so, in my observation, to give God right worship, I think I've done some numbers, and in 1965, 
we, as a Catholic Church, were on the top of our game. We had so many conversions happening. We had Archbishop Fulton Sheen promoting the church. Uh, are you talking about fifty? Are you talking about nineteen fifty-five or sixty-five? Sixty-five. Well, you know, Fulton Sheen had talked a lot up to that point, right? And and it shows that. And then I did the the statistics, the same statistics in nineteen, excuse me, twenty fifteen, fifty years later, and we were way down in every category. And my conclusion is, is we've got to give God right worship. We've got to go back. What do you mean by right worship, Father? To the Latin Mass. I mean, I started saying the Latin Mass exclusively almost 10 years ago, and I think the graces, I can just see them. They're just, there's so much coming from giving God that old worship that we used to do. And I know that it's we've got a problem in the church, but the problem is we can't talk about it. So well, let's talk about it now. I want to tell you a story, and I want you to hear what you think. See, when I became a Catholic uh, at the age of 34, largely through my friend Erasmo Leva, who used to take me out to the Monastery of the Holy Spirit in Conyers, Georgia, when I was a graduate student in Emory, I went through a, I went to a few Latin masses here and there as I became a Catholic. And I thought they were great, but through my whole experience as a Catholic, and that's been now a while because that was in 1984, I haven't uh, been to any more, but this is the story I want to tell. My wife and uh, son and I were in Alabama for Christmas. And we, you know, we went to Christmas uh, midnight mass, and the two uh, priests did it ad orientum, facing the altar. And all of us, we all agreed, we found this so immediately powerful. It's as if all the parts of the mass, the the familiar parts, all of a sudden fell together. It made sense, and uh, is now that wasn't Latin. But when I, you may know Father Vincent Toomey, he was a student of of uh, Joseph Ratzinger and then a close friend of, of him as a pope. He came on the show about two months ago to talk about liturgy, and at the very end, I asked him, "What's the one thing you would you would plead with?" priest to do to improve litur- liturgy, and he said, face the altar. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? Oh, I love that. Because when I was ordained, I said Mass versus populum to the people for six years. And I, I'm somewhat of an introvert, and people ask me, well, why do you go walk in the streets? And it's like, well... This is, this is how God chooses. He, he, he confounds the world, the wisdom of the world, and chooses. So anyway, my point is, about six years into my priesthood, I was encouraged to start saying a lot of math. And I just fell in love with it, because when I turned on Orientum towards the East, I could really pray. I could really focus yeah, it, on God. I just right and I could there. see I could Father I could see that in the priests too that were celebrating this mass. It was they were facing in the direction where the power came from, <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. You're on to something now. And I I uh, I'm in a good parish here in Atlanta, but and very good priests and good people, but I really want to start going somewhere where I can... We have several Latin masses within a half an hour here of me, uh, and I really want to start doing that, but I feel bad about just suddenly not showing up at my own parish. I, w- I wonder if other listeners feel that way. I'm sure there are, because, you know... 
just like St. Francis Sells, I try to be like him and go the long route and be patient. So, for example, my mom and dad, I started saying the Latin Mass exclusively when I became the chaplain for the Benedictines of Mary, Queen of the Apostles, because I just fell in love with it, and God gave me that opportunity. Well, my mom and dad are wondering, you know, what, you know, the my son is, they probably were thinking, my son's gone and saying the Latin Mass, but we don't know much about it. And I wouldn't push it on them. I would just answer their questions. Well, which which version them. which and version of the Latin Mass are you doing? It's pre it's nineteen sixty two. So it's not it's not the Tridentine. It's the Tridentine Mass. That's right. You got it. It is okay. Yes. Yes. So there's so. They started to attend it, and over the years, they fell in love with it. And now, they go to Mass every day, and there's about four Latin Masses in the city of Wichita, so they always go to those four, and then they go to the Noah's Ordo, so they can go to Mass every day. But they've helped me in this League of St. Martin that I started, which promotes many things, but one of them, reverence and the spread of the Latin Mass. But we want to promote it with charity and joy and happiness and patience like St. Francis de Sales did. And it works. So my mom and dad, they're just on fire. They just love talking about the Mass. They say, you know, when the priest comes in, people genuflect and bow when he walks down the aisle for Mass. And they just love bringing their net, their um, their grandchildren and just talking to other people about it. And people have so many questions and they don't know about the Latin Mass. They want to be able to answer the questions. And anytime they get stumped, they ask me. And then they're learning and we're all learning because then I have to research some things like well, why are there what? so many signs of the cross in the Latin Mass? What's the difference? And, well, Father, what's the difference between the Novus Ordo... Latin Mass and the Tridentine Mass. Yeah, the, the major difference is that there's a lot of differences. Um, the introit, for example, it's the beginning of Mass, and the priest in the Trinitine Mass has to say that in Latin, crossing himself as he says it. But in the Novus Ordo, the introit is optional. It's like the introit antiphon. And it can be, there's many options where it can be used for um, the priest can say whatever he wants. And you just go through the order of the Mass, the Collect and the Epistle and the Gospel. There's lots of differences. In the Trinitine Mass, you can only do it one way. There's no way around it. But in the Novus Ordo, there's lots of options. And well, I'm looking at I'm looking at a at, at a text of the Tridentine Mass, and what I mean I'm seeing that the first line is in nomine patris et filii et spiritus sancti amen. Where where is it that this difference with the Novus Ordo kicks in? What part of it? Well, um, a little further in. Yeah, we say Psalm 42 which is, judge me, O Lord, you to come in a day of and cause a name, according to the, my heart, and that's omitted. In ah, the Lord of okay. I got you. Well, I'm gonna, we're going to take a, sh- we're going to take a short break with Father Carney, uh, and, uh, we'll be back in a moment, and by the way, Father, I have, Really good friends in Wichita. You probably know Jerry Zell Holiday. Oh, and yeah. you probably know Stephanie Mann. I think so. Because I taught for several years, uh, part time or part time courses at what is now Newman University and had a great time. So we'll be right back with Father Carney and talking about St. Francis de Sales and liturgy and right worship in just a moment. 
I'm back with Father Lawrence Carney, and I just found out he has moved back to his home diocese of Wichita. He's very happy to be there. He's only been there a month. We started talking about this wonderful two-volume set released by Tan on by St. Francis de Sales, his book entitled The Catholic Controversies, A Defense of the Faith, which is a compilation of all the pamphlets that he wrote while he was ministering in Calvinist territory in eastern France and for four years, very successfully. And Father Carney, we, we were talking about the Latin Mass, and I've heard, I mean, are there restrictions on the celebration of the Tridentine Mass or not? Yes, there are restrictions. So Pope Benedict XVI wrote a motu proprio in 2007 explaining that priests can say this Mass at will and that this Mass was never taken away and can never be taken away. And so uh, we had some restrictions placed on that by Pope Francis roughly a year and a half or two years ago to make it more difficult for priests to be able to say the Mass and there's rumor that there's going to be more restrictions coming around the end of spring. So we're just, as a Latin Mass community, I encourage the people, this is coming from the hand of God, and we just have to know that He's going to take care of the situation. And He's a good God, and He's he's doing this because this is how the greatest good is going to come about in the shortest amount of time. So the enemy wants us to get all up in arms against the Pope. Right, right, about right. This. But we're not going to do that. We're just going to go through this with charity, at least for, my, for me and my house, as a father and a priest that is a spiritual director and I have a lot of people that look up to me, I want to be a good general and say, Folks, we're going to get through this, and we're going to give God right worship, and we're going to save souls through it all. Because God wants that more than we do. Well, is it? So, I mean, is it the case, Father, that He wants? If you're going to do Latin Mass, would He prefer that you do it uh, the Novus Ordo version? If that is that what's going on? Yeah, that's what He wants. And I've even heard rumors that there's going to be restrictions for the Novus Ordo where Ad Orientum will not even be allowed. Whoa! So that's what a priest told me, yeah. So there's some serious things here. As a church, we were founded to, to worship God. And to take this away, you need to give us some reason in order to take it away. Um because this is acting beyond the, the authority. So we just have to go through this with charity. We don't know how long this will last, if this rumor is just a rumor. But it's already very hard on a, on a lot of Catholics that have fallen in love since Pope Benedict opened this up to us and assured us this is our heritage, the Trinitine Latin Mass. And St. Pius the fifth in a document called Quim Primus, he wrote that nobody can ever take away the Trinitine Mass. No Pope can ever take it away. Nobody can take it away. So there's a, a definite battlefront here with regards to worshiping God, but you know what? That, that happens in every single age. Oh, it does. Know. Absolutely. And I like, I like your attitude about, let's, let's not... <laughs> get all gruff and huffy about it. Uh, these things have a way of, even even in my experience as a Catholic, and I'm 73, I'm coming up my 40th anniversary being Catholic, uh, I've watched things that I used to get all hot and bothered about kind of <laughs> work themselves out, you know, if you're just patient about it. And uh, But the, uh, why do you think this there is this sort of wave and it's not a huge wave but it's significant why do you think there's this wave of interest in both 
Latin Mass and ad orientum? Well, I think the Holy Spirit is moving the faithful to get away from a time warp. You know, there's this time warp that everything has to be of the 60s, you know, the sexual revolution, the, you know, the church is going to have this great springtime. But the numbers show no, and hindsight is twenty twenty. So I see that the Holy Spirit is raising up holy men to become priests that are being trained in the seminaries now. There's young people that want to be serious about a religious vocation, and they flock to the traditional Latin Mass. For example, the nuns that I take care of, the Benedictines of Mary, when I started there about nine years ago, there were 21 nuns, and now they have uh, their first daughter house, and they have over 50 nuns, and their average age is about, it was 27 when I started, and now it's probably about 32, because so many come in at the age of 17 or 18 and want to give their life to living an authentic, traditional Catholic uh, way of worshiping God and way of living by wearing the full habit and chanting the divine office as Benedictines ought to eight times a day in the Gregorian chant. And that's why I'm back to Wichita is to help the nuns start a third daughter house here. Really? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's so wonderful as they grow, they need to have a place to go. So Mother is very strategic and looking ahead, and so the clergy here want them, have invited them to come here and start, but they're just coming to make retreats right now, so they're not able to start a monastery yet. Yes. And, uh, again, though, uh, the this move, this, this perhaps this Holy Spirit move toward Latin Mass and so forth, it is, after all, Latin, and people aren't trained in Latin anymore. That all stopped in the 50s. You know, you could you could argue that up to the 50s, anyone who went to Catholic school had at least uh, a mass-level understanding of Latin. How does that work out, Father? Well, that's a great, great question. But, yeah, I didn't get trained in Latin myself, so I started studying it during and after the seminary. Uh, yet, people are attracted to it, even if they don't know Latin, because the mystery is is present to them. People that have never seen the Latin Mass come to it for the first time. I mean, I have grown men saying, Father, something really happened in there that I have never seen before. And it's really encouraging to see that. And also, when the Mass is sung, it, it's just so heavenly. I mean, after Sunday Mass, I go to my folks' house for dinner, and every other Sunday we talk about how beautiful the Mass was. And we just sing the praises of of God's holy liturgy that he gave us. And another thing to consider is that Latin is one of the three sacred languages, and that comes from the cross. There's Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. Those are sacred languages. So it's good that we have Latin as one of those sacred languages, how we approach God with a certain sacred tongue, not a vulgar tongue, like Italian or English. So oh, Latin, so you better tell our listeners what you mean by vulgar there. <laughs> vulgar language, like the Vulgate, you know, like... Um, the com- It means common. Yeah, that's right, common, thank you. Yeah. I got stuck for a minute. Yeah. So, you know, but I want to make that, that distinction between the sacred and the non-sacred languages. And so even... When Latin was a spoken language, they had two types of Latin. 
ecclesiastical Latin, and then just classical Latin. And the Latin that was spoken on the street, the classical Latin, that wasn't even worthy for the divine liturgy. It was only reserved for ecclesiastical Latin. So it's very interesting. To yeah, I studied both, and I studied my 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 favorite uh, language was Greek. I wish to, I'm, I'm, I've been thinking I need to get back into that because it has such a muscular uh, mm-hmm. sort of driving force. Uh, it, it's really unusual. And uh, so, what's going to happen though if you've got these people, you know, in significant numbers, go, starting Latin Mass, been to Latin, going to Latin last now for years. What happens if the rugs pull out from under them? You know, that's a good question because, first of all, if the rugs pulled out, God is permitting that in his permissive will. And I tell people, this is going to make us better if we turn to God because we rely on him more. So I tell people, this is, an opportunity for us to drive into the interior life, to go really deep down into that prayer of union with God, which the highest is the spiritual marriage. So every struggle, adversity, that God presents is an opportunity for us to grow in virtue and the gifts and in the interior life. So it's, it's a very beautiful thing to be persecuted because that shows that God loves us. Otherwise, if we're not being persecuted, it means that we're too weak to be persecuted. So, but that's that's the positive thing. Unfortunately, some people in the Latin Mass may return this adversity with some vices, and they, they might lose their faith. And well, you know, and that would struggle. Uh, and Father, I'll just say outright. It's not legitimate to lose your faith over this. You can be annoyed, you can be angered, you can be discomfited, but your faith is your faith and it's not dependent on having your Mass celebrated in a certain way. Or am I being too harsh? Tell me. Well, I tell people, don't let any man or woman get in between you and Jesus. So, we've always got to stick close to him, because he's the way, he's the bridge between earth and heaven. Well, Father, let me let me tell you why, why I said that so uh, emphatically, because I've been going to Catholic Mass now for nearly 40 years, and being completely, utterly put off by the music. Wherever I go, with few exceptions. I mean, just really cringing. And yet I haven't lost my faith over it. That's right. That's right. And people that love the Latin Mass, they tell me, Father, I need the Latin Mass because I'm so weak. I need to have those chants to be done in the Gregorian chants. Because otherwise, it's hard for me to keep the faith. So, the Latin Mass is, is an opportunity for certain souls to stay with the Church. Because so many have left the Church since the 1960s. So we got to cling the best we can. I'll just say, the Latin Mass has really helped my priesthood more than anything else has. Because well, can you go into that? I mean, what what yeah, what's, I can. what is it that has reading the lives of the saints and reading how they would attend mass and how the priests that became saints or the bishops how they said the mass. This is the mass that the Latin rite saints went to. So it's so beautiful. To have that, okay, I am actually attending the Mass that these that made these people become saints. Yes. 
Yeah, I get and that. And I'm a historian. I love history, and I love continuity, and I love how things click together. This is the Mass celebrated by Thomas Aquinas. This is the Mass yeah. celebrated by Newman. This was the Mass celebrated by Augustine, Bonaventure. You could, you could just go right, right. through the yeah. list, right? St. Francis de Sales, yeah. And you are then... You're in the company, the spiritual brotherhood and sisterhood of our church. And, um, but I'm telling you, and I don't mean to over dramatize it, but the impact of my wife and on me and my wife and son by going into a mass and unexpectedly having the priest face the altar, I mean, we just all looked at each other and we kind of just started nodding our head like, this just feels right. <laughs> the sense of fidelion, the sense of the faithful, yeah. Yeah. The closer we get to the faith, because it makes the more us we have look, it makes us look past the priest, right? Right, right. And the sun rises from the east, and there's so many symbols of how the sun Rising is like the Son of God rising from the dead. And when he comes back, he will come from the east. The children look east. I want to read a poem to you. May I do that? You may. You in, but I mean, it's your fault because you just inspired. <laughs> it's, it's by George Herbert who wrote it not too long after the time of St. Francis de Sales. And it is about exactly what you are talking about. Here we go. It's called Easter. Rise, heart, thy Lord is risen. Sing his praise without delays. Who takes thee by the hand that thou likewise with him mayest rise. That as his death calcined thee to dust his life may make thee gold and much more just awake my lute and struggle for thy part with all thy art the cross taught all wood to resound his name who bore the same his stretched sinews taught all strings and what key is best to celebrate this most high day Consort both heart and lute and twist a song, pleasant and long, or since all music is but three parts, died and multiplied, and let thy blessed spirit bear a part. The sun rising in the east, though he give light and the east perfume, If they should offer to contest with thy arising, they presume. Can there be any day but this? Though many suns shine to endeavor, we count three hundred, but we miss. There is but one, and that one ever. Well, that reminds me of very beautiful life experience that the Austrians used to live back in the 19, I'd say, 30s or 40s. They would observe the Lord's Day. You know, that's the, the, the Lord comes from the East. And they would make it a whole day. So, on Saturday, the bells would ring at 3 p.m. or 5 p.m., depending on what city you lived in. And that was to say, it's time to stop working. Now, these people are working with their hands in nature. And that's what this poem reminds me, getting back to nature. Well, they would go home and put out their best clothes for the Sunday Mass the next morning. They would take their weekly bath. And... After the meal, the father would open up the missal and read the readings for the mass for the next day. They would prepare everything for the, the meal for Sunday. They would go to bed early. And then in the morning, the hired hands would go to the early masses so that they could go and do the milking and the cows, etc. But those that weren't 
working in the bar would go to the high mass and they would love that tradition and then they would come back home with friends and family they would be with people throughout the whole day just enjoying themselves and enjoying God's holy day and a priest the pastor back then went to one of these people's homes and said, so why do we have these customs in Austria? And the people said, because we're Austrian. And the priest said, no, we do this because it's the Lord's Day. Yes. And you see, deal with the League of St. Martin, this association of faithful that I started, we want to give God honor to his holy face and to recapture observance of the Lord's Day. And that's not just making a bunch of rules of negativity, but it's having that beautiful getting together to go worship God on Sunday and then having the rest of the day to be with family and friends. So, you know, Father Carney, another thing that. that another thing that Father Vincent Toomey, the Irish priest who I mentioned, who's was a friend of Pope Benedict the Fourteenth, he said the Mass starts in the sacristy. That's right. I never heard that, that said before. That is so beautiful, Bill, because I had to learn that about 15 years, 14 years into my priesthood. I've been a priest for almost 16 years now, thanks be to God, but we used to talk in the sacristy with the, you know, with the servers, but yeah. one of the fathers pointed out, Father, you know, there's relics in there. And I talked to my spiritual director. I said, Father, there's relics in the sacristy. Should I be quiet? And this is a priest of, it says Latin Mass exclusively, very wise. He said, Father, yes, the Mass starts in the sacristy. You should observe silence unless necessary to speak. And so we implemented that. Bill was one of the best things I did that year. Because it really prepared me for the silence to meet God. And it was helpful. I wasn't as distracted when I went to the altar and began the prayers of the foot. And, of course, the nuns would start their chanting, and it just felt like I was getting closer to heaven every moment. Yes. Well, you know, I, I spent three years singing in a, a Schola Cantorum on my way into the church. That was part of my journey. I sang chant. I sang polyphony. All sacred, of course. And, and I, so I know the, I know that extraordinarily fe- feeling of almost being lifted off the ground, <laughs> right? When you're right. in the midst of that kind of music. Yeah, because in this poem, the author mentioned three parts. Well, is that polyphony? And guess what? The nuns, they are masters at polyphony. And when polyphony is done well, oh, and it's... Well, coming, yeah. A mass is monophony. Oh. Yeah. A mass is monophony simply because all the words are being sung on one line together. Mm-hmm. Polyphony begins when you add another line. So let's say that somebody sings the words at a uh, octave below. That was the earliest form of musical polyphony. It was called organum. But when second and third and fourth lines were added that were different from that first line, that happened in the in the early Renaissance. That's polyphony. And no, and that's that's why at the Council of Trent there was this big debate with you know the Palestrina, the composer, got involved with of whether there should be mass settings in the polyphonic form. And some people said no, because you can't hear the word. Well, Palestrina wrote a famous mass, and he used polyphony and demonstrated, yes, you can hear the words. Sorry for my little momentary, you know, classical music thing. But you know, Father, you know, we all we all have our loves, don't we? And that's one of mine. Sacred music's a great love to have. A lot better than some things. <laughs> <laughs>
so I want to mention our book again. It's called The Catholic Controversy, A Defense of the Faith by St. Francis de Sales. Two volumes. It's wonderful. It's serious. You can read, I think, uh, two, maybe two chapters a night would be very good. Mm-hmm. And uh, you'll really learn a lot. And, uh, of course, what you know we've emphasized in this conversation is the overall spirituality of evangelization. And this remarkable story of St. Francis de Sales taking on the Calvinists and converting them back back to the faith they left. Uh, just a, a great story. And Father Carney, I want to thank you for telling it to us. Dale, it's an honor to be able to speak about St. Francis de Sales and maybe he'll become our friend since we're you know, promoting his works. I would love I, to I could use that. I, I, I'm for <laughs> that. Put me on the list. <laughs> because I'm a former Southern Baptist minister. I believe in evangelization. Yeah. And I've never stopped evangelizing since I became a Catholic. That's a good thing. We you know, I tell people about that. my faith. I defend my faith. I'm totally open about it. And, uh, yeah. I'm, you know, I'll take on anybody, frankly. I agree. I tell people we can't go to heaven alone. We've got to bring people with us. Yeah, it wouldn't be very much fun to go alone, would it? <laughs> no. So, Father Carney, for Lawrence Carney, uh, I have a feeling you and I will be together on Church and Culture a number of times as the years pass. And I want you to say hello to all my Catholic friends in, in Wichita. And please pray for us back here. And you're a great guest, and I, I look forward to having you again on Church and Culture. Thanks, Joe. You're a great host. An honor. I try to be. Thank you. And all of you who are listening, I'll be back in a moment with another wonderful guest.